From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vague and Indeterminate. Loose Vague and Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. I'll be your co-host, James Talaka. And our guest today is, I think it would be fair to say, the hardest working man in introductory economics, a professor to hundreds of students every semester for over 20 years. He is the creator of phrases that have entered the common parlance among students in our esteemed department, including perverse public policy and stupid on stilts with flashing neon lights. He makes no secret of his Sicilian heritage in his lectures and his love for his family, especially his wonderful wife, Sonia. He gave the only lecture I've ever been in where the professor sang an Aretha Franklin song, and his office hours are also like no other. He is, in some respects, the gatekeeper of our esteemed department. No one gets to the 300 level without going through him. Are you with me? It's the one and only Professor Thomas Carl Rustici. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Uh, Professor, first question. We know you've been part of the Mason economics community for some time, since your days, uh, as young as you were, you know, our age, since you were an undergrad. Uh, But we were wondering, how did you first get into economics? How did Rustici first get introduced to economics, libertarianism, philosophy, everything you teach in your lectures? Oh, good question. Well, James, Dominic, when I was in high school, I took an economics class. It was the worst class I ever took. It was taught by the swim coach who never had an economics class. And I remember I read some articles by Milton Friedman in his columns, and that made so much sense to me when I read it. I'm like, this is unlike anything I've ever heard in my uh, high school class. So as a graduating high school student, I um, had the courage to write Milton Friedman a letter. And I wrote him a letter uh, because I I looked at the bottom, said University of Chicago, Nobel laureate. He had just won the Nobel Prize a few years earlier. I wrote him a letter, so I'm a high school kid graduating, and I maybe want to be an economist like you. Is there any advice you can give me? And I mailed it off to the University of Chicago, and I thought I would never get any kind of response. And uh, about three months later, the mail comes, and my mother says, oh, Uh, Tommy, you've got something from some guy named Milton Friedman, and it's from Stanford University at the Hoover Institute. And he was actually at the Hoover Institute. That's why it took so long for him to get his mail from Chicago. And so I opened it up, and it was a three-page letter that this famous Nobel Prize winner had wrote me with advice on what classes to take as an undergraduate. And just as a hint, he said, get your bachelor's degree in mathematics not economics, because it's less biased in the way it's taught, <laughs> and it'll help you for graduate school. That was the only thing I did not do in that letter. I didn't get my undergraduate degree in math. But then he listed 10 separate uh, important books in economics, from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, all the way through his stuff on monetary history, through Hayek's work on constitutional liberty and road serfdom. There were 10 major books. And he wrote a little paragraph on each one, why they were so significant. And he said, I would suggest you start with these books in this order. And uh, I uh, did what he said, except get my degree in math. <laughs> and I went to uh, the local bookstore at our shopping mall. And I said, can you get me some of these books? Because they don't have half of these books. These are technical economics things. And they ordered them. And I bought them one at a time and read them one at a time. And before I ever had an economics class. And I said, this is stunning. This is amazing. Uh, just a note about Milton Friedman. I did get to meet him once before he passed away, and it was down at the Cato Institute at their 25th anniversary gala. And uh, I got to meet him and talk to him. 
and remind him of that kid that wrote him a letter <laughs> and he remembered he said did wow. you he goes did you do what i told you yeah and i said yes and no i bought the books and read the books but i didn't get a degree in math and he said that's okay he said i, I that's all right he got you there and i said yeah so that's that's what i'm here for wow. so i owe i owe my entire interest in economics to Milton Friedman, who yeah. I consider one of the greatest to have ever lived. And I'm sure that's exactly what he would want you to say. <laughs> I'm he, sure that's a great why. inspiration. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. You uh, think about a Nobel Prize winner writing a teenager coming out of high school. Yeah, it doesn't happen every met. day. And, he, and it was a handwritten letter. Wow. And that, that told me, it tells me so much, not just about his intellect, but also his compassion and caring for bringing people into economics. I've, I've tried to do the same. I figure he, he did that for me. Yeah, definitely. It was interesting. Uh, yesterday at Econ Society, we had um, uh, uh, Russ Roberts as, as our guest, and, and we talked to him about, um, uh, and he, he talked to us about Milton Friedman, and he was saying how it's so funny that um, lots of people believe that everyone agrees with Milton Friedman. And the, Milton Friedman is this like sinister force that took over the economics world, and everyone agrees with him now. And Russ Roberts was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "He's like, we still have to, you know, uh, the the idea that capitalism and freedom has just become economics is 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 pretty ridiculous." And uh, there's still definitely. Um, there's we can only wish. <laughs> we can only wish, even though with a few problems with the book, I have sure on on average. Yeah, but but that was. That was interesting uh, yeah, yeah. To, hear, to hear from him on that because he was he was just absolutely dumbfounded that anybody could believe that. But uh, um, but yeah, so it, it's clear that your interest in economics is primarily an interest about teaching economics, and, and you have a real passion for for teaching students, and you, you teach these uh, introductory classes and uh, with with hundreds of students in, in lecture halls all the time. And uh, uh, and James James noted that. Uh, you don't mince words or, or, or shy away from uh, or shy away from using uh, strong language in your in your lectures. Uh, is that teaching style deliberate? Uh, are you trying to do that, or is that just something that comes naturally to That's you? A great question. I it's it's both. Okay, it's both. Um, one of the things that students don't often understand is economics is your life. It's the principles and science underneath all of the aspects of your interactions with other people in this life. And when you're in a big lecture hall professors are disconnected from students it's not an intimate relationship and part of the way you bring these scientific principles into someone's life is you got to give them part of your life you got to you got to expose yourself to them in ways they can resonate with and say you know i've heard that or i've done that or my parents did that and i, I see the principle there and it ties these things together it makes it real uh, the worst thing you do is get in there and just start drawing graphs and equations and talking abstractly, and then you've done the student no good at that point because they disconnect from it. They're just getting a grade at that point. My purpose is to get your attention, keep you focused, give you the examples that lead to understanding, and there's some entertainment value in there as well. That's why I do some of the things I do. Huge entertainment value, I just have to add. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. See, what you didn't know is before I wanted to become an economist, and this is not known by m most all students, is I was trained to actually be an actor. Really? It was a drama. Yeah, oh yeah. I was My wow. original heart love uh, through high school was to go to Hollywood and be actor, and be an actor. Yeah. And from the time I was in sixth grade, I took drama lessons. And I paid out of my own bank account to take drama lessons at the University of Missouri at Kansas City when I was like 10 and 11 years old. 
to be trained to be an actor because wow. I knew when I graduated I was going to Hollywood and going to be an actor. And I did drama throughout high school and, uh, and so forth and all that. But uh, when you graduate high school and everyone is putting pressure on you not to go to Hollywood, not to be a young kid out in California, think more seriously about your life, think more practical. Uh, eventually, I gave up on that dream to be uh, an actor. But I do get to act a little bit on the stage, as you all know. I yeah. sing, I dance, I do some of these kinds of things. And, uh, and you have to watch me. So, so <laughs> it's a right. win-win for me. I get to do the acting. I never really, I, did, I couldn't get to Broadway. I couldn't do, but I, I do get to do it. It's up on stage. It's my stage. Mm-hmm. And I get to teach the subject I love the most, economics. That's an incredible story. We definitely got more than we thought we would have there as an actor. Yes, and like you said, you're right. just trained to do it. Voice and choreography and all kinds of different stuff. Wow. And that's and, why my lectures are the way they are. And one thing that actors have certainly is a reputation. And while you certainly have a great reputation as to your lectures and people who even don't do so well in your class certainly appreciate them, the Rustici exam is very infamous on campus. And I just wanted to ask you, why is it so important to challenge uh, introdu- introductory level students? Oh, great question. I'm a believer in academic standards. One of the biggest things that I've noticed in the last 25 years, and I've taught in eight different major universities, uh, Georgetown, Hong Kong U, a lot of different universities. And one thing I've noticed consistently across the board is grade inflation. And grade inflation, I'm, I'm just vociferously opposed to uh, because it is destructive for the same reason of monetary inflation. You debase things, you devalue things in so many ways. And, and this idea that we just, you know, you paid for your school, you deserve to get through, and uh, you don't really need to learn anything, but hey, we're passing you through, to me is almost academic fraud. We're not doing the students any favor by not training them rigorously to go out and expose themselves to the real world. And so coming from the business world, as well as my belief of uh, maintaining standards, you know, you've got to give your customers the, the real deal, the real product. And, and that's what we do in my class. I make sure you, le- you rise to a level of competency to proceed to the next level, 300 and so forth, to prepare you for what you're going to face when you walk out of this university. And so I know the trend, and it's been going on for 25 years, uh, to lower the standards, water down, the, and you make sure everybody can get uh, good grades. And I always tell students, the grade's the least important thing you get in my class. And if you start from that proposition that you're giving them something more important than a grade, you're giving them this whole body of science that will change their life forever. And once they accept that, they're willing to put in the work. They're willing to be challenged. They're willing to learn and grow. And, you know, if they do well, the grade will reflect. And that's why I offer so much uh, time with students and so forth. But, uh, but to, to devalue your grade and to say, look, it, by lowering expectations, and you can hear me out, and everybody on this campus can hear me, when a professor lowers the academic standards, he's insulting the students. He or she is insulting them. They're basically saying, I don't believe in you. You can't handle it. It's too much. I, I just get just revolted. The thought, if you're in a classroom, you should want the best for your students you must expect the best from your students. High expectations, high achievement, you'll learn. And as my great professor, my first econ professor, Walter Williams, 
who I happen to think is the greatest professor in the history of the world. <laughs> he is the greatest. He's the great one. Always said, you always strive for excellence. You reach for the stars. Because if you fail, you fail in style. <laughs> you at least learn something. Uh-huh. And that's the goal here. Yeah, I, I know I've, I've talked to you before about um, academic issues. I got, I got a quote from you for the uh, student newspaper when we were talking about course ratings. I, you'd mentioned to me then that um, uh, that you on your course ratings, you'll often get people who expect to not get a good grade in the class but still rate your teaching highly. Mm-hmm. And that's something you take great pride in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, if you're giving everyone A's, one thing that'll happen is if they're if they're really you know happy as easy teacher it's just pass everyone along, in the very short run you'll think oh I'm happy about this but they won't respect you as a professor because they implicitly know you didn't believe in them, you didn't trust that they could learn and earn the grade. I always when I was a student having professors like Walter Williams, Jim Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, they had the highest possible expectations. And I remember I never tried harder than for those guys because I wanted to, to prove to them I can do this stuff. And, the, and I always respected them the most because they believed in me, that there was nothing that I couldn't learn if I wouldn't try. And so, I, you know, I've kept that with me. And I made a solemn promise to myself and to students uh, that in my class you're going to learn. I, don't, I may have to sing. I may have to dance. <laughs> But I, my goal is that 50 years after you leave my class, some things you will never forget. And you'll be telling that to your kids and your grandkids and saying, you know what? Let me explain to you what you don't see. Here's a part of your life I learned long ago. That's success. What you're saying is so true because I have multiple friends who have failed your class but cannot praise you enough. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I mean, uh, look, I always tell people I, I passionately despise socialism. You all know that. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't curve. I've never curved in my academic career. I would quit a university that would ever even ask me <laughs> to curve because I would never commit academic fraud to a student and demean and devalue a student by saying, oh, I have to pass, pass you to make you feel good. My job is to transmit this information so that way you're well prepared. And the reality is, is that um, I always tell people uh, the, the gift you get from me isn't just a grade. It's a, a way of looking at your life. And the goal, if you need to do better on tests, is come to see me. And I'll, I'll help you and tutor you, and my assistant will tutor you, and the tutoring center will tutor you. We will do whatever it takes. But the goal is uh, you, have to, you have to learn it to earn it. Uh, as we mentioned before, you've coined several phrases that stick in people's minds. Stupid on stilts with flashing neon lights, Rustici rules, and my personal favorite, double in your face with disgrace. I think all the listeners want to know, have you considered getting these phrases patented? I should, I should copyright them. Yes, I should. I should. You forgot the, my most famous, right? Do what you do best, trade for the rest. Right, the, the Ricardo the, phrase. Ricardo, Comparative Ricardo advantage. Phrase. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, let me go through some of these. Stupid on stilts is, of course, Jeremy Bentham. Uh, that was a philosopher in the 1800s. And, of course, he was trying to critique uh, natural rights theory. And, of course, I'm a natural rights theorist, so I think Bentham was wrong here. He was a utilitarian. But I like that phrase, stupid on stilts, right? It shows you standing up there. <laughs> Flashing neon lights is my contribution to it. I just want, you know, because I'm thinking about the, the lights on Broadway. The flashing lights, I, I right. want to be an actor here. So I'm thinking I'll do Bentham, but with a little Rustici acting, you know, give me the flashing lights of Broadway. <laughs> All right, so that's how that came up. The, um, uh, what, was it? what was the other one you said? Oh, Rustici rules. Well, 
that I kind of stole from my great teacher, Walter Williams. It was always Williams's rules. Ah. Williams rules. I think yours has a little better ring to it with the double R. Good, yeah, yeah, good yeah, cop there. Rules. Yeah, and that, yeah, there's a CC lesson. And you also was... stole the, the water truck from him, Well, it's, right? it's now my water truck. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Students, I'm sure he sold you the rights to it, of yeah, course. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story about that one in just a second. But, but the third one, the double in your face with disgrace, was from my daughter, Jacqueline. Now, my daughter was a teenager at North Stafford High School, and uh, she came home one day, and she didn't understand um, – uh, price supports for farmers. That was the issue. And her teacher was just briefly was mentioning something. I don't remember what class it was for. And the teacher got all confused. He didn't understand it. So this is why you don't have people who don't know economics, teach economics for this reason. So my daughter comes home and she says, Dad, you're an economist. I know you talk about these price supports. Can you explain it to me? So I explained it to her with supply and demand graphs. I said, this is where the government steals your money. And they pay farmers to try to raise the price of food. So you have to pay higher prices, right? Buy it and keep it off the market. And my daughter looked at me as a teenage girl at North Stafford High School. This is about 18 years ago. And she goes, that's a double in your face with disgrace. And I heard that. I'm like, that's good. That's good. <laughs> in my day, we used to call it cool and groovy and, and that kind of stuff, right? And I thought, wow, Jacqueline, that's good. It's a quintuple in your face with disgrace. It's like five different things going on here. But uh, so I have to give my daughter credit for one. I give Bentham the credit for the other and Walter Williams for others. But I've kind of spent them around. And, and the water truck. Oh, and the water truck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. See, see, when I first saw the Williams water truck in the desert, it was in 1982 in spring in my first econ class. And Walter pulled out the water truck within, like, the second week of class. He brought the Williams water truck out. And I remember that hit me so hard. I thought, this guy is phenomenal. This guy's great. He's, like, my hero. I mean, he's the reason I came to George Mason was because he was here. And so I swore up and down knowing I was going to be a professor one day. And I watched every one of my teachers teach, undergraduate and graduate. And I watched them. I thought, what worked with me? What phrase, what example, what evidence, what model, what is it, how they said it clicked? And I just keep all those notes. And then when I would start to teach, my turn to teach, I'd go back through all these notes that I took as a student. And this, I'd highlight this, say, this was really, this was magical. That was a moment of wow. That was a moment of wow. And then I decided when I write my lectures, I'm putting all these wows together with my own stories that I want to tell. And uh, to make every lecture interesting, connect to their life. And so I had a, a young lady who passed my micro class and she went in to take Walter's uh, intermediate class a few, years, uh, a few semesters later. And uh, she goes, to, Walter does water in the desert. And he says, uh, here's the water truck, the Williams water truck. You're in the desert. He draws a little stick figure like I draw a little stick figure. And he says, now, now I'll take everything you have, right? You, whatever you got. And she raised her hand. She said, no, no, you, you won't. And, and Walter thought he had a, a, a student making a mistake. And he smiled at her and said, young lady, why do you think I wouldn't be able to charge you everything you got if it's water in the desert and you're dying of thirst? And she said, well, Rastisi Water Truck was there last semester. He was before you. <laughs> I'm going to buy it from him. Buy it. And he, he reminded me of this. He says, so your water truck is in my desert. I said, yes, yes. I said, my students buy water from me, not you. That's an excellent example of competition there. It's good. Williams yeah. comes in. Or no, you, you come in first and then take his market. I, t- I, I take his example. Yeah, work. perfect. So you got to always use things that work. And, and see, the thing is, we don't have to invent the wheel ourselves every time. People before us have great ways of doing things, great techniques, great uh, examples and so forth. 
And, and the reality is, as I've always told uh, uh, prospective teachers, we go through college and we get excited about a subject and we want to make it our life and teach it. And then all these great experiences that got us motivated, we think it's our like little private, little hidden world that we want to hoard it and hide it and don't let the, for me, I want the world to hear it. I want them to hear every little piece of it, plus whatever I can add to it. You know, that's the point about it. And so I always tell people when you're in that classroom, uh, you don't have to invent the wheel or hide things that were amazing to you. Show the world what amazed you, why you are so excited about the subject. They'll get excited about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And yeah. Um, and with Professor Williams, that's quite literal. That's right. That's <laughs> he's, right. He's, he's a tall guy. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, you often be in your course uh, by declaring that your family and your economics are your passions. Um, but uh, what are some other hobbies and interests that you have? Great question here. Um, my hobbies already, besides hating socialists. Uh, that's my, that does consume a lot of the day. I wake up in the morning, and I first thing I tell my wonderful wife, Sonia, when she gets up, she brings me coffee every morning because she gets up. She doesn't like the coffee I make. It has to be her way. Mm-hmm. And she'll say, honey, wake up, and I'll kiss her good morning. I'll say, honey, I love you. I hate the socialists. I despise them. I want to smash them and destroy them intellectually, of course. You know, intellectually, yeah. nothing physical. Anything. Just yeah. just crush their, their stupid ideology. And um, and then my wife once said to me, she said, honey, if all the socialists and all the fascists and all the Nazis and all the communists and all the collectivists of the world were gone tomorrow and we had your world, your utopia, she goes, you'd be miserable as hell. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would imagine you'd get pretty bored. She, sa- she said that to me. I said, yeah, you're probably right. She goes, because you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have this passion every morning to get up to fight the good fight. And so that's what I do every morning. I kiss her good morning and say, I love you. And then I say, I hate socialists. And before I can even get out, she goes, I know, I know you hate socialists. <laughs> and, and so that's the way that kind of dynamic works there. For my hobbies, I really, I don't have a lot of hobbies. I used to as a kid, but as you get older, you get other priorities, your values change around. My one big passion in life is trout fishing. I love catching rainbow trout i love catching them i love eating them i'm not a big animal rights people i like to eat them that's why i like them i like to catch them i like to have fun with them and so forth got reeling them in and so forth and so i'm extremely passionate about fishing i love fishing any kind deep sea fishing uh stream fishing any kind of you give me a fishing pole and fish in that water and that i've always said if you live a good life when you pass into the afterlife, if you go to the good place, there's a big trout stream with an infinite amount of fish, <laughs> an infinite amount of time to catch them. And, and, and in the backdrop is beautiful music playing as you're catching fishes and just enjoying your life. That would be wonderful. So, so where do you where do you go to where do you go to catch the trout around well, here? Well, I usually I, I trout fish a lot back in Missouri. So every summer we go back to Missouri to visit family. And uh, we'll take a week, sometimes two weeks of our summer vacation there, and then we'll take the rest somewhere else. But uh, every time we go back, we go to Bennett Springs, Missouri, uh, which is an interesting story. It was originally owned by a private person named Mr. Bennett. Beautiful. It's in the mountains of the Ozarks in southern Missouri, by, kind of by Branson area. And it's a beautiful natural stream that's like three miles long, and they stocked it full of trout, and they have a hatchery there. And so after he passed away, he willed it to the state. So the state took it over. But originally it was private. And, uh, and it's a beautiful place when you're sitting there trout fishing and you're looking at the scenery and you're looking at the here in the water and you're looking at the fish. It's just 
devastatingly wonderful. It's like <laughs> there's no problems. It's, it's, there's no problems. I mean, you don't think about politics, which you know gives you ulcers. You know, you don't you don't think about that. You think about me and the fish. You know, it's it's a mano a mano, us versus them, right? Yeah. Try to catch them. Do you sometimes imagine the fish as socialists? <laughs> no. Be honest. No, 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 Because no. uh, I have more respect for the fish. So. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> to, to any socialist listening, you got to learn to have sense of humor. Because I know they don't. Yeah, they, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't believe in sense of humor anymore. You definitely do. You definitely do. Sure. No I'm, question about yeah. that. So uh, I know I've I've mentioned this to you before as well because my my roommate. Uh, took your class. He's a computer science major, but he took your class just because he wanted to take your class. He's not. He didn't take any other economics classes, and um, he uh, he really loved your class, loved your lectures. And we were talking one time. We were like, "Man, I wonder what kind of music Rustici listens ah, to." I think you and I had a talk. Yeah, about yeah, we did, we did, because I asked you about this, but but because um, we couldn't figure it out, and we were sitting there, and we were like, "Man, I don't know what kind of thing he would like." And I know you commute from Stafford, Virginia, right? So right, you have right. a lot of time in the car. You got hour, a lot of time to listen to music. A little over an hour each way with no traffic. Yeah. Traffic can get two, three hours. Exactly. You got right. lots of time to listen to music. So what do you listen to? It's an interesting question. In class, I, I try to give you a range of music, right? Mm-hmm. I, I obviously do Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. respect, you know, and I do the little song and dancer. And I do some country music, you know. I do the Johnny Paycheck, take this job and shove it. You know, I ain't working here no more. I try to give you some, you know, this and that. I do, uh, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, you know, those kinds of mm-hmm. things, right? Um, but I'm very eclectic. Now, I do have um, uh, an iTunes account that my son Giovanni got me long <laughs> ago. And my wife said, fill it up with your favorite music. And it's got a range of stuff, surprisingly so, right? My favorite s- singer in all of his, I believe when you go to heaven, God is listening to Roberta Flack. <laughs> I think Roberta Flack is singularly the greatest <laughs> singer because she sings to my heart. She gets in there and grabs it. Her words, her, her voice. I have every Roberta Flack song ever made on my iTunes, every one of them. She just is just, I, I like love songs. I like ballads and romance songs and stuff. I also, I like some rock. All right? I like REO Speedwagon. All right. I like a little Def Leppard, Nacy DC, a little bit of that kind of stuff. I like some country. I have Alabama on my stuff. Yeah. I have Kenny Rogers on my stuff. I have some classical music from uh, the tango, the Italian tango. It's always mm. instrumental. I love that. I love yeah. the tango. I love um, Romeo and Juliet, the theme song to that. There's a lot of different things. Some are instrumental. I like Blue Oyster Cult, some of their songs, right? <laughs> I like a range of stuff. I even really, really shake you up here. Uh, I like Nelly Furtado, and I like uh, some stuff like that. Um, wow. All yeah. across the eras. All across. No, I like them all across all the different, you know, I, there's nothing I really don't. I'm not big on rap. Mm. I'm just not big on There's some stuff that, you know, is pretty okay, and I got a few things, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but but not much. I You know, to me, it's not much. Uh, what I don't like, you, I think you already know, I don't, I don't like, like Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande. I'll tell you what I hate. You want you to hear it? I see you laughing right now. I hate singers that change the vowels in their elocution of the words. Guys like Shawn Mendes. Uh-huh. And uh, what's the other one? There's another one. Uh, well, and this is all Michael Jackson's fault, right? Michael Jackson's the, the enemy yeah. here. Yeah. 
he was a great artist until he screwed it all up uh-huh. and he started cha- slurring his words to show passion. Now, I was trained as an actor and you have to elocute your words clearly, especially when you've got a recording studio that can redo things and catch it and they don't do it. And, and so they're substituting kind of intensity and passion for uh, melody and uh, tone and pitch and so forth. And Michael Jackson started this all off. Uh, and others thought, wow, if the king of pop can do it, I can do it. And then you end up with Ariana Grande songs where, you know, she's doing bacon and eggs and no one could figure out why she's talking about bacon and eggs. And it's really thank you next, but it sounds like bacon and eggs. And I heard that and I'm like, well, is this a commercial for IHOP? I mean, what is this? She's like, she loves the bacon and eggs. I don't like Taylor Swift because, you know, it's shake, 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 you know, 85 times in the same song in three mm-hmm. minutes. Take those words out. There's nothing left. So, I, I mean, I understand there's, there's these programmed things where you have a certain, you know, uh, rotation and you hit a certain beat. Okay, I understand that, but uh, it's not Roberta Flack and it's not, it's not even ACDC or Def Leppard or any, you know, ones that actually play instruments, you know, they do, you know, Journey or those guys actually play instruments and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have a range of stuff. Yeah. I have a range of stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, so before you were a professor of economics and before you got your doctorate in economics, you were in charge of grocery stores, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in, in Missouri, Business. correct? Yeah. 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 And um, so we were kind of wondering how that impacted your, um, you know, were you were you thinking about economics in the back of your mind still? Because that would have been after your Milton Friedman letter, oh, right? Oh, so those after graduate school. Yeah, yeah. yeah so sure. you would have been you would have been yeah. still you would have been still thinking about that when you were running the the grocery stores. So how how did that here's, how did that practically apply there? Here's what happened for me. My my family's in Kansas City, Missouri. We're a Sicilian family, very tight. Broke my heart to be here, but this is where the, the Department of Economics is. That was mm-hmm. so great. And after being up here for five years. Even with a teacher who wins a Nobel Prize, I'm in his class. I taught for a year up here at George Mason in grad school. And then I went back home, and my mother was very ill. My mother ended up passing away shortly after uh, we got into business. But when I I got back to Kansas City, um, it was pretty obvious that I wasn't going to be able to come back up here without missing my mother and possibly her passing. So my brother and I, my brother Tony and I said, well, we're both stuck here. My brother Tony was a musician, and their band was a, a, a touring California, state of California, and they, they did Star Search with Ed McMahon and all that kind of stuff. And his fiance lived in Kansas City, and uh, my, my family, uh, our family lived in Kansas City, and my mother was ill. And my brother Tony looked at me and says, I can't go on with this uh, road trip knowing my, our mother is sick, knowing my fiance is ready to break up if I keep going out on the road. He says, why don't we just stay here and start a business? And our family business, my father and my uncles all have grocery stores. So I thought about it, and you have to make priority decisions. And I, I, I'll tell you, it was not a mistake. Uh, my mother was more important than anything in this life to me. And I, I'm so grateful I did not come back to you know continue teaching and so forth precisely because I would have missed those last few months with my mother. And so you only get one mom in this life, and, and she is the prize of my life. And uh, I was there for her at the end. Now, we're in this business, and uh, it's a family business. Relatives are uh, involved, and, and other investors are involved, and so forth. And, you know, at that point, you focus only on business. 
And I said, you know, if, if all of our wealth's on the line on this thing, my father's home was mortgaged, my, uh, my brother is a doctor, everything he had was in this business, our cousin's home was in this uh, a mortgage for this thing, we had all kinds of people investing. I said, I have to make this work. I have to. My priority has to be them and not what my kind of personal dreams are. So we did, and uh, as we grew and got another store and so forth, we, we got to where I could finally take time out. You know, I worked every day of the year, including Christmas. We were open on Christmas. Every day of the year for the first two and a half years, I never took one day off. I mean, short of my mother's funeral, but that afternoon I still went into work because I had to close the store that night. So I technically never was out of that store for two and a half years. And my brother said, Tom, he says, we're making a lot of money. We're doing well. We've got a couple stores. We're starting to grow really fast. And he says, you know, let's take some time off. And he says, you know, he goes, I want to play music in Kansas City. I want to get my band, do some stuff on nights off. And he says, and you want to teach. You taught in George Mason. You loved it. And he says, so why don't we get scheduled nights off one day a week or something and plan whatever we want to. And I said, good deal, good deal. So he he would take his nights off on like Saturdays because they would play in different nightclubs and stuff like that. And me, I wasn't sure what day I wanted off for my day off. And um, and then I start looking in the newspaper under economists mm-hmm. and the local universities that were actually hiring professors of economics. And I said, I just wonder. And I told my brother, I said, hey, this night, this class is offered is a night that I could take off, make that my night. I went and applied, and uh, within five minutes, they said, I showed them my resume, I showed them everything, and my transcripts, and they said, you got the job. Wow. You're the guy. And it was in a graduate MBA program teaching economics. And so that's how I started back in the classroom because I knew I could then feasibly make that transition with good conscience, knowing we paid all our bills, we paid back money, we've done everything, now we're safe, now it's time to start having some fun. Um, and and that we did that you know, for the next five years, <laughs> so seven and a half years in that business. Uh, five of them were running the businesses and uh, teaching, and I ended up teaching uh, at four different colleges in Kansas City at the same time. Wow. <laughs> At the same time, because uh, one day off turned into two days off. Day classes were in two universities. Night classes were in the other universities and doing the businesses. So I never uh, kept office hours there at the universities. My office hours were at my business. I said, mm-hmm. if you want to come and talk to your professor on the syllabus, here's my business. Here's my location. <laughs> I said, you can shop the and store. Like, I was well, going to we'll say. Give, we'll give you the specials. Uh, well, you know, shop the aisles. Here's the, here's the, here's like the, a good grocery store owner, you were in the back of the store, so they had the to back. walk by no, no, all the actually products. Actually, was. My office yeah. was in the back. <laughs> and they had to walk by everything, right? Uh, and so, uh, but, uh, but, it was, but it worked out. It worked out really good until seven and a half years later when my father passed away. And then really the heart and soul of everything. You know, by that time, my brother was uh, playing music two, three nights a week. I was teaching four different colleges uh, and run stores. And when our father passed away, that was really the defining moment because so our mother's gone, our father is gone. Um, not really sure what we're doing here except just accumulating zeros in the bank accounts. Let's do what we love. What's our passion? Now, that's when I made the phone call to George Mason. And Walter Williams, my former teacher, was the chairman of the economics department. And I had a little conversation with him. And he said to me, Tom, why don't you come back? He says, you move back to Virginia, I'll get you a position. You teach here at George Mason in the econ department. And I remember that night, I went home. I told my wife, I'd been married for a year and a half, and I told my wife, I said, honey, I got a shot to go back and be a full-time professor at George Mason University, where I was from. 
and I said our life is going to change radically, <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to be on professor salary, not the world you're in right now with this kind of money. And I never forget with my wife. I owe my wife everything because she said, if this is what you have to do with your life, and I said, yes, this is the battle for freedom, for liberty, for the science of economics and showing people what this is a part of their life. She says, if you have to do this in Virginia, she said, I'll go anywhere you need to go to fight this fight. She goes, if you need to go to the North Pole, I'm going with you. She goes, but I only have one condition on you. And I said, what is that? She goes, win. You win. You go in this thing full-hearted. You don't go at this thing as just a job. And I said, oh, no, you don't quite understand. This isn't going to be just a job. Uh-huh. And so we then transitioned up here to George Mason. And so it was kind of my first teacher was my my boss here. Yeah. And, he, and Walter's opened up so many doors for me in so many different ways. But one thing I did learn from business is when you think about business, you have customers. And my students are my customers. And when I came back to teaching, I said, I'm going to take a business approach to the classroom. Things I learned about marketing to customers, things I learned about communication with employees, things I learned... These are valuable skills that can be taught in a classroom and be used in a classroom to be effective. And that's why you hear so much of these stories from my family, from my businesses, and so forth, because you're my customers. There's an exchange going on. There's an exchange going on. And I've always said this. If you go into business and you don't value your customers, you're not going to have a problem because you're not going to have any customers. Yeah. Right? So I always would tell my customers, you're my reason for being here because you're the ones bringing me the money. Well, it's my students are my reason for being here. You are enriching my life with your life, with your passion, with your skill, with your effort, with your dreams, with your ambition to change the world in a more productive way. And so part of my joy in life is seeing my students achieve better things than I ever could have done at their age. And I see this every semester, bright students, more advanced than I ever was. And then I know this is worth it. And, I, and my wife knows the sacrifices we've made were worth it. She just said, win. Don't, don't, don't fight this battle half, halfway. Give it everything you got, and that's what I've done. Wow, that really is incredible. And speaking of the battle that you're referring to, um, let's transition to that. Uh, we know you're a staunch advocate of liberty, as you made clear, and this is a very unfriendly political climate. Do you have any optimism, or would you say your outlook is more optimistic or pessimistic for the future of liberty based on you being part of this war for many years now? No, that's a good question. Um, Here's the way you want to look at this. Politics is coercive communal, so you can't escape it. You could say, I defect, I don't want to participate, but guess what? You're still bound by the rules that system is going to impose on you. So it's a question of do you just kind of secede and find freedom in an unfree world somewhere and hide or do you take it to the fight and say, look, I got a, I got a belief system. I got a, uh, a value system, and I want to see that, and I'm not giving up. Now, uh, a few points on this. It's always a composite. In politics, there's some good things. There's some bad things. And different people will weigh the different pieces differently. Those, if you're a single-issue person and that issue is working for you and you're getting what you want, you say, oh, the world's a wonderful place, even though 99% of the other stuff could be garbage and the world going to hell in a handbasket. So different people place different emphasis of the pieces of the composite. So it's a little bit difficult because we're uh, another professor that has, shares my same values may put more emphasis on social issues or economic issues or whatever, and we may have very different 
expectations of what we're looking at. They might be very pessimistic or optimistic because they're seeing, oh, there's some improvements for liberty and this and this and this. But there's these negatives over here and for that, that, that. And it all depends on how you value it. For me, having been an economic advisor to Dr. Ben Carson, being a senior economic advisor to a presidential candidate gives you a unique window into politics. And it did for me. And I thought I understood enough of what I was going to walk into and then got a rude awakening that while the candidate himself was a very decent, honorable human being, he was a neurosurgeon, very respectful, very humble person, the people in a campaign that are lifetime politicals, that's all they do, campaign to campaign, don't necessarily have the same uh, humbleness and uh, decency. They become political animals that lose a lot of their character as human beings, I might say. So my exposure to it was upfront, close, and very personal as I got to be good friends with the candidate and his wife and so forth. Um, in this current political climate, I'm, of course, horrified, as you know, mm-hmm. right? I think all my students know I hate politicians. The reason I liked uh, Dr. Carson is he wasn't a politician. He was a neurosurgeon. You're the only professor I've had that has referred to Washington, D.C. as the Death Star. It's the Death Star. Yeah, it's Death Star. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and it really is because uh, you have to make a decision between principle and power. This is the bottom line. It's very intoxicating to go for power, especially for academics. I mean, you get a shot at being in the White House and you get fame and fortune. You say, now my ideas can actually have some marginal influence. I can make the world a little bit better if they listen to this or that and that. But then, you know, you always got to understand, what are you trading off? And remember what I told your classes in the first day of class, your honor is your most important asset in your life. That's true in business. That's true in academics. That's true in everything. And I understand that because those temptations are there to uh, do what might be politically uh, more uh, expedient, but you sell your soul in the process. And I refuse to do that. And fortunately for me, the candidate I was working for for seven months till he left never asked me to compromise uh, my integrity people that worked for him did and i gave them choice words on which place to go when they die uh, as you all know i won't say those words but you know what i'm talking about uh, with very very uh good cuss words uh, attached to that uh, because i don't believe you sell your soul down a river for nothing you just don't do this your character is your life it's what you are it's who you are and you never sell your integrity out, out. and so i look at the current political climate of course i'm horrified I don't like the occupant in the White House. I do not like him. I don't think he's presidential. I don't think he behaves like a president. A lot of people like him because of that. They think, oh, he's just a bull in a china shop, breaking stuff. Breaking stuff is not an answer. (laughs) Anybody can break stuff. Um, And, of course, I didn't like his his, uh, challenger in Hillary Clinton. I mean, she breaks stuff too, right? Mm -hmm. So so the reality is, is we've got a scenario where you look at that last election cycle especially the primaries. And my problem is, of course, in those primaries where you, you, you train a candidate with technical positions in policy and economics. Then he gets into the debates after you spent hours and hours and days of training him on what this means and how you, how you phrase that so that way you say it correctly but yet understandable for the, for the viewer to hear what you're saying and not make slop mistakes or, or, or things like that. And then, you know, and then uh, they start talking about the size of their hand and uh, how, you know, making insults against women and making insults against each other. 
where my candidate had to say, well, someone please insult me so I get a chance to say something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the humbleness of Dr. Carson, right? Please yeah. insult me so I, you know, call me a name or something <laughs> so I could talk once in a while. And it was so loaded, so biased, the Republican Presidential Debate Commission so loaded it to where basically the more humble uh, guys that were more thoughtful got drowned out unless they got in the insult match. So I was horrified because I'm thinking, what is the purpose of what we're doing if the game is already kind of baked in the cake, that the loudest voice wins, the most uh, insulting person wins, the person that has the least thought given into anything wins. And, of course, you're seeing that now on the Democrat side on this one where you have lots of uh, contenders, and it's the same thing on that side. So I look at this, and I look at where we're at now at this point in political history, and I look at left and right, and I think they they totally screwed this up. And the structural problems, and that's what motivated me to work for Dr. Carson, was to work on those structural problems, the tax code. It isn't a matter about rates. It's about code. It's about what the structure is. And, and I wanted to change the whole structure. I did not want to just lower rates. I wanted to lower rates and change the code so it's not a game system for anybody. And, and, and everything we proposed was we're changing the structure of the regime of how we're going about this process such that, Dr. Carson, um, I told him, we can reach out to the opposite political party that has some legitimate concerns. Maybe their policies aren't correct, but we can show them a pathway a pathway that we can bring people together to say this is better for both of us, both sides, if we just get to this point. And, of course, that was, did not go over well with the politicals in the campaign that wanted to play the game as politics as always. So I, I, I'm very discouraged. I'll be straight up with you. Mm-hmm. The structural deficits that are in entitlements are going to just drown your generation. We know this. Everyone knows this. Every economist in the world knows this, uh, unless you're in denial of math and accounting, of which then you're reckless, and then you're an idiot on stilts with flashing lights. <laughs> the entitlement programs, they've got about $200 trillion of unfunded liabilities baked in the cake. I mean, it's already there. Uh, and that will come due over the next 30, 40, 50 years. We know that based on demographics and so forth. And nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody wants to have an answer but that you see denying to try to do something is not an answer i mean the answer i always hear from people that are young and libertarian i'll say just let it all collapse and i'm like are you crazy (laughs) grandma gave her whole life worked and they took her money and you're gonna let her 90 years old say go out on the street Uh, you know tough luck sorry you're the one that gets uh, screwed at the end of this game no chaos is not an answer because you know what emerges out of chaos something even more crazy even more extreme so it's a it's a it's a it's a dangerous thing that we're in because nobody wants to face reality nobody wants to face truth nobody wants to say okay look there's enough guilt and blame to go around left right all kinds of things foreign domestic there's enough blame to go around let's get past that for a moment and ask what are some answers here that reasonable people can say okay it's a way to kind of chop that uh, tsunami, that tidal wave, it's a way to chop it down from 200 feet to maybe 100 feet or 50 feet. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do that, and that discourages me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just letting colla- collapse is never an answer. Chaos is never an answer. Um, and denial is not an answer. And politics, as it's played out right now, of who can promise free stuff 
I'll buy your vote with your children's money of the future is not an answer. That is the problem. Mm-hmm. And people want free stuff. I know as an economist, we all want free stuff. The problem is the free ended long ago, mm-hmm. and it's coming due. We're going to have a trillion-dollar deficit this year with an economy that's actually growing, yeah. not in recession. <laughs> and this is the beginning of the amplification of those deficits. So the unfunded liability is going to crush the whole United States, and we know that. We're going to be Greece. We're going to be Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing we can do about it. Well, and that's the that's the really amazing thing because oftentimes the justification for deficit spending is well we need to do it if there's a recession. But now we have you know the strongest job market in a long time, right. and we have a, right. a booming economy, and and we still. still have this enormous deficit. And it shows, I think, the incentive problems that politicians have. And and, and you teach uh, public choice economics, which is you know applying the economic logic to the political market, and. Uh, what what are some public choice remedies for the spending problem? Yeah, I, I proposed this uh, a couple of years ago after the campaign was over because um, the question is, what do you do to rein in government spending? Because spending is the issue. It's not revenue. Government collects just enormous volumes of revenue. But they spend vastly more, and the growth rate of spending is faster than the growth of the mm-hmm. real economy. Because they're spending other people's money. Other people's money yeah. that aren't even alive yet, mm-hmm. right? And they're indebting them with nothing to show for it except maybe we'll buy your votes with your kids' money. Well, that, you can't kick the can down the road too much longer. I propose this, and it's got some traction. Uh, well, I've looked at balanced budget amendments. There's some structural flaws with those. I've looked at when people, like that was Jim Buchanan, my great teacher, wanted that. But there's some problems. He gives some escapes there. Then there was the uh, tying spending to the GDP. That was Milton Friedman's suggestion. But there's some problems with that, too, because he has to leave escape valves. So what I've done is I've said, look, I'm thinking out of the box here. Here's a different way to do it. Under the Constitution, the federal government assumed the debts of the states in uh, 1789. As part of the entry to the Constitution, the state Revolutionary War debts were assumed by the Congress. And in Article One, Section 8, the Congress did have the power to uh, borrow money on credit. Okay. Now, the reality is, is that the federal government has an, a blank check where the federal government sets its own debt limit. Of course, there's no incentive for them to ever actually be constrained by any limits. So a handful of politicians on the Democrat and Republican side will, will uh, go back in the cloakrooms and negotiate some, a deal, and then the debt's always raised. So what I want to do is change the Constitution in one little narrow way. On Article 1, Section 8, where it says to borrow money for the United States on credit, say, with the approval of the majority of the state legislatures or state governors. Now, that's it. So in other words, to raise debt ceilings, the states now have the final say, not the federal government. The state can propose it, government can propose it, but they don't have their own... Uh, unlimited American Express card, and they mm-hmm. can't just negotiate between themselves. They got to go out to states. And, and say, this Look. is and this is based on the idea that originally the government debt was belonged to the states, and then the federal government took it on with the constitution. That's right. That's right. Now the federal government has got us into so much debt they can't control this. So what would happen is if let's say we run out of uh, we run up against the debt ceiling, and let's say Trump and Pelosi want to raise the debt ceiling another two trillion dollars, they'd have to go to the fifty governors or the legislatures of the 50 states, they can do it through the Governor's Association, they can do it through whatever, and say, look, here's the amount of money we need the debt ceiling for the next two years raised, or three years. Um, do, will you authorize it? Now you've got a different set of players and agents with different agendas, 
both within the same party and in the opposite party with every incentive to say, well, what's in my political interest as I advance my career may be different from the guys in D.C., in my yeah. own party or in the opposite. Yeah, and state parties are often quite different than the national yeah. parties, too. You'll have a lot more influence over your local government than you will your, your national government. Why? Because you walk into your, your, your local uh, uh, state representative of Virginia, it's a much smaller group of people, uh, that he represents versus walking in your congressman's office, which has 800,000 people in that district. So, so you actually can get a conversation where pe- local people can now start expressing something to say, look, it's not some thing behind closed doors with a handful of people colluding to just keep indebting us. They got to come to us. They got to come to us. Now, it doesn't mean they can't raise that debt ceiling because if you make a good argument, you say, look, we need this money for a war and it's a crisis or whatever, just convince majority of the states or the majority of the governors if you don't want legislatures to do it go to the governor's association they take a vote up down yes no and what this will do is check and balance washington uh, uh politicians because now they have to there's an authority to which they must obey and that authority is the mass of those states and those governors which may have a different agenda different they may think it's in my interest to make you make budget cuts and that'll make you look bad but hey I'm in a position to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not voting for that. Mm-hmm. And so you got to give people of both sides an incentive to, to behave in a very thoughtful and a very uh, clear way such that they end the recklessness in Washington. And the way you end the recklessness of Washington is you take the credit card away. And you say the people who really put those debt limits or people not in Washington, D.C. Those are governors of both parties. There's legislatures nominated by both parties out there. You're going to have to make the appeal to them. Mm-hmm. If they say, yes, we give you this authority, then you got your debt ceiling increase. If they say no, then people in Washington got to make hard decisions that are politically hot potatoes, and you finally get something. Now, they could raise taxes to do it, but that's politically hot potato as well. So I want to put enormous pressure on Washington to do the right thing, and that means including the concerns of the mass of American people out in those states that they never see. Mm-hmm. I want that conversation where they say, you know what, deal with this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, the consequences you're going to have to take, make those choices, make those cuts. If it is raise taxes, do it and then see what happens. If it is cuts, do it and see what happens. But that's the job you signed up for when you were elected to Congress or the Senate. Mm-hmm. That's a job you have as a president. Yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And on the note of uh, spreading power away from Washington, um, a, a policy proposal that I'm personally a fan of and I'd like to get your, your take on is um, moving around uh, federal government agencies to mm-hmm. different parts of the country. Because mm-hmm. there's no reason for, for example, the Department of the Interior, which oversees national parks and government-owned land, which is mostly in the West, mm-hmm. to be headquartered in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, and you know, being so close together here in 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 the D.C. area and in Virginia and Maryland creates all these opportunities for rent seeking. It creates all these opportunities um, for uh, groupthink mindsets to take place that, mm. if they were headquartered out in Denver, might not be happening. Uh, do you think that would help? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm 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 not opposed to that. I think that that could marginally be an improvement. The reality is is that once you get inside the Beltway, it's a whole different mindset. Mm-hmm. And and um, now I have heard uh, the contrary on this. They said, "Well, 
if you send the bureaucracies out to the United States, now you're poisoning the rest of the United States. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've heard that one too. I'll tell you a proposal I had for Dr. Carson on a lot of these things was to um, uh, asset divestiture a lot of the things the federal government owns. So we're talking about the Department of Interior, which oversees and manages uh, about a million square miles of the United States, about a third of the whole United States. And mm-hmm. I said, we need to sell this all off. And they could sell it to private individuals. They could sell it to state governments where you could say to Wyoming or Colorado, you want to run that? You want to have it? You want to make the rules for it? You give us X amount of money for that national park, and now it's a Wyoming park or a Colorado park. Money comes to the federal government. There's no taxes. That's their own local governments taxing their own people for their own thing. Or even international. Have other countries buy it or other companies, foreign companies buy it. And you start looking at that asset divestiture, you're basically shrinking the actual government, returning resources to the private sector. And, and of course, um, just kind of moving the chips around a little bit, saying, well, this 100,000 bureaucrats are going to scatter them out, certainly is better than keeping them all in D.C. Mm-hmm. So I think your first cut on this is, yes, it will be better. Mm-hmm. It would, I, I, would, I, I would support that. Mm-hmm. All the things equal. Yeah. But I don't want all the things to be equal. I want them <laughs> to actually sell this stuff off. I want them to sell off Amtrak. I want them to sell off sure. the TVA. I want them to sell. There's no reason government should be running any of this stuff. Uh-huh. And if people really feel, well, we, there's certain uh, national parks that we don't want the private sector. Okay, then let states buy them in their jurisdiction. Let them buy them. Mm-hmm. Right? And you still have a government that runs them and owns them and so forth. That's always on the table as well. My thing was, how do we get money out of these assets the federal government is mismanaging? Get that part of the budget out of the equation of our, of our unfunded liabilities and debts and so forth. The federal government, turning it to the private sector or local government control, which, which chops that knees out. And my guess is, at that point, then you would see states start saying, well, we have uh, 10,000 bureaucrats that we're paying taxes for, but there's only a few hundred square miles mm-hmm. to be managed. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Let's start laying some of these people off. We don't need them anymore because all in Washington, D.C., the rent seeking goes on and you get people doing nothing but collecting money from the rest of the government. Mm-hmm. So, so what might help is to think about this. There's this another little Rostisi phrase. All right. You know where the word politics came from? <laughs> I've heard this one. <laughs> it's actually from the Greeks, right? Uh-huh. Most people think it's the polis and so forth. That's not correct. Yeah. It means poly, which means many, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. ticks, which are blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> many blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> yep. That's a little Rostisi joke. Now it all makes sense. Now it all now makes sense, right? Is, yeah, yeah <laughs> mobile ticks there uh, sucking on us. So, so yeah, I, I like what you said. Anything, here's the Rostisi rule. Let me say of this. Mm-hmm. The more you can diversify, decentralize from the federal government and move it out, move it to private, move it to states, move it to law, I'm uh, universally on every single thing. There's nothing. I don't think that wouldn't be good. Mm-hmm. I think it's good on everything. Yeah. And then one other kind of oddball constitutional thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you mentioned before um, the size of congressional districts and how the congressional districts have 800,000 people in them anymore, and it's very difficult for representatives to actually be representative of that many people just because it's not very feasible. Uh, at the time of the founding, there was probably about thirty to 40,000 people in each congressional district. Um, there have been proposals by some people to expand the House of Representatives to have more districts so that— um, representatives can actually 
be able to be representative of their people. Uh, would you support that in any sense? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. yeah, it's a really fascinating. I haven't really thought much about that, but just right off the top of my head, because um, it, it kind of puts two things against each other. Because you you would have better right. representative government, but you'd also have more politicians. Yeah, more so. politicians. Yeah, <laughs> no, you have more. You know, the actual, a lot of people think the funds to pay for Congress, the perks and the payrolls, that's really a small part of the budget. That's not not what's driving most of it. Yeah. Uh, What's driving its entitlements, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and all that. That's what's driving the the budget in so much sense. But, um, you know, the reality is is politicians did not used to be full-time politicians. They were part-time statesmen. Mm -hmm. They were generally lawyers, farmers, merchants. They, they still are up. most state legislatures. Yeah, in yeah. most state legislatures. So they would show up for a few months, debate a few things on treaties or this or that, and a few allocations of a budget, and go back home. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you know they're not here all the time in Washington is is something we can learn from our founders, that people shouldn't go to politics to make a career or life out of it. Go back in the real world and see real people uh, and listen to their concerns. Um, I, yeah, sure, I think if you if you could make it smaller, I mean, uh, make the size of the district smaller, uh, that that definitely makes it more competitive. Of course, you got gerrymandering and yeah. how you draw those district lines are would be an issue. But but um, no, I mean, generally, I wouldn't see that as a big problem. I mean, sure, you got a little more budget for the Congress to run the Congress, and you got some problems of logistics where you get the other 500 seats mm-hmm. in, the house, in the House floor. Sure, yeah. Get, but those, are, those, are, those can be managed. But the, the, the real problem in politics isn't where and how many of, of the uh, apparatus of the thing. The problem is the programs. And the problem is the programs offer an unlimited entitlement in so many ways on money we don't have and we're never going to have. And someone's going to have to pay for it. And the thought of defaulting or just letting things collapse is so horrific that uh, in times of crisis, government usually grows in power. All I have to tell people is Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And you would have thought, because of all the government policies that caused the Great Depression, (laughs) I wonder when you hear that, that caused the Great Depression. Listen up, high school history students. The government caused the Great Depression. And I know people think, well, we've gone through the flames of hell. Now we're going to learn and undo all these government policies. What did we do? We expanded those government policies, created new policies. In crisis, we don't always, we're not in the best ability to reason and think through and deliberate we just kind of grope mm-hmm. and political charlatans and hacks appeal to our ignorance and our envy and our resentment and our fear and they give us new entitlement programs on top of the old entitlement programs so this is why i'm not a big fan of let's just let it all collapse and let the crap hit the fan and hey then we'll start all over and i'm like you're not in the real world mm-hmm. because what you're gonna start over with is something probably even worse than you've got now because no one's learned the lesson see it's about the lessons do people understand why you are in the crisis? If they do, then chaos might lead them to say, we're not going to do that no more. We're going to change this. If they do, it's not clear to me watching modern politics that anyone seems to understand <laughs> that you can't pull free stuff out of the future indefinitely. And they're buying votes with other people's money. And those people aren't born yet, so they can't vote against them. yet. Mm-hmm. But they will be saddled with that debt. And that's your generation. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry to say that my generation, <laughs> the generation before, was so reckless and irresponsible 
and immoral. Quote me on that. See, that's another receipt of that. <laughs> Quote me on that. Immoral to line their pockets with special interest uh, legislation, special interest favors, special interest privileges, special interest entitlements that will bankrupt their children and their grandchildren and lay that burden on them. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, I'm going to make my kid's life really bad and put them into all kinds of debt by putting a credit card in their name while I just run up the bill and then, ha ha, sorry, I love you, I'll pay the bill. Uh, that is immoral. That is just evil. And yet, in politics, that's called compassion. I just want plain language, honest talk, honest evaluation, clear numbers, clear math, clear accounting, and, and a courage to face that we're in something way over our head, and politics, as usual, is causing this. And the only answer people seem to have is more politics as usual, just more mudslinging mm-hmm. politics as usual. And they don't seem to think there's a real issue here, yeah. a way to solve it. I want to solve it. As, as, as sorry as you are for the uh, for, for leaving our generation with, with debt like that, I am even more sorry that I have to cut you off because this is all we can fit for the podcast today. So uh, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Stacey, and uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You could follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash EconSociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.